things early career recruitment the strategies to help you succeed will help you work with generation z with all the information that you'll need it's the jack and ollie show hello and welcome to the early careers podcast with myself ollie sidwell and me jack denton so, Jack, today we have Tanya de Grunwald. Um, we are going to be talking to her about a range of things. Uh, so, Tanya, welcome. Um, hello, thank you for having me. This is fun already. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely to have you on board. So, Tanya, it's, it's fair to say you've been a vocal, outspoken voice for young people over the years. Um, so, to induce you, uh, to induce you, I'm not going to induce you, that's the wrong word. <laughs> introduce you let's go with that one um i'm going to start uh, at the end and work back so you've just written a book called how to get a graduate job in a pandemic Topical. people will see by the uh, uh, the picture we promote this with uh, and that helps students do exactly that so students and graduates get jobs um you also run the good and fair employers club which rewards and benchmarks employers who excel in their commitment to young people which is very honorable which is great um, but you're most widely known as the founder of Graduate Fog, which is a careers website which calls out bad practice amongst well-known employers of young people. And on your list of people you've challenged, there's some great people on here. Um, you, I say challenged, you've also championed change. So we've not only got Tony Blair, we've got Philip Green, Vivian Westwood and Simon Cowell. Do you want to hear something himself. interesting about Tony Blair, Ollie and Tanya? Go on. He shares the same birthday as me. <laughs> the 6th oh, of hello. May, if anyone's interested. Not Lovely. the same year. Different year. <laughs> Different year. Um, so, you, yeah, you challenged him for running unpaid internships, um, which is a pot topic I know you're really passionate about and will definitely cover. Um, and finally, your website, Graduate Fog, also exposed Capita, who were charging graduates to leave their graduate scheme up to about £21,000 as an exit fee. Um, your challenge of that created a policy which the firm has since scrapped. So a real roll call for you there. Um, so how did it all start? Um, that's, yeah, that, that is quite a crazy list, isn't it, when you look at it? Um, my background's actually in journalism. So I worked as a, as a magazine journalist for about 10 years, actually. Um, I was working for Cosmo and Grazia and Glamour. And those sorts of people, um, I actually used to write kind of dating features and funny features and things like that. So this is, this is quite a change where I am now. Um, I then started writing pieces about kind of work and careers and money. Um, and I wrote my first book in 2007, um, which was the sort of prototype for the books I've written since. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was called Dude, Where's My Career? The Guide for Baffled Graduates. Um, and that was, but that was kind of pre-tuition fees. Um, so that was very much kind of like, oh, you know, what should I do now? I've graduated, um, you know, trying to make decisions. And really that was kind of real world advice, sort of like you might get, um, from like an older sibling or cousin or somebody like that. And there was a lot of myth busting in there, which I felt was really helpful for people who didn't know what they wanted to do when they graduated, which hello, I think is actually most of us. Um, but things like, you know, just, just hearing that it was a myth basically that, most people know what they want to do when they're 21 and this is how you do it, um, was actually really helpful for me. So I wanted to just kind of spread some of that real world advice. So, mm-hmm. so basically that was kind of like a very long feature, 
um, just with kind of advice and tips and boxes and things. I've since kind of rewritten that book in several different ways. So that was called um, How to Get a Graduate Job in a Recession. And then it was changed to How to Get a Graduate Job Now. And then the new version is How to Get a Graduate Job in Pandemic. Love so, it. Really so, well tailored, this. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so there are parts of it that, that have been sort of in existence the whole way through. And then I've kind of added bits and deleted bits as and when life has changed, the world has changed. So I started Graduate Fog um, in 2010. Really, I didn't really know what I was going to do with it, to be honest. Um, I thought it was going to be careers advice. But very quickly, it was the blog that took off, particularly mm. as, as you were saying, um, I started challenging people over unpaid internships. And at that time, um, because everyone was talking about tuition fees, nobody was really looking at what was happening after after graduation. And I felt very strongly that, that there's a, there was a broken bridge, really, between education and the world of work. Mm-hmm. Some might say it's still there. We can get onto that a little bit later. <laughs> um, but there seemed to be a problem there which people weren't talking about. And at the time, unpaid internships was something that nobody was talking about. So the NUS weren't talking about it. None of the job boards were talking about it. Um, and at that point, I mean, it's hard to remember now, but people didn't seem to get the link between unpaid work and kind of opportunity and and diversity and social mobility. Mm. Um, we've come such a long way since then, which I'm thrilled to see. But at that time, people just weren't joining the dots. And, you know, I was hearing an awful lot of, well, you know, it's great experience and, you know, people, you know, we, you know, we quite often offer people some paid work at the end of it. We now know that's kind of a sign of a bad internship, really. You know, in a way, you're proving your point that working for free does get you a job at the end. So what if you can't work for free? So there seems to be an awful lot wrong with that. Um, <clears throat> and particular industries were doing that more than others at the time. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, you, you know, I knew about, good about it firsthand from working in magazines. But I can see that, that, it, that was happening more and more. Is that where it kind of started? So, you know, you, you started the website and you were, I assume you were exploring lots of different issues. And it just struck a chord with you. Was that because that you'd done an unpaid internship and you thought it was unfair, or you'd seen them, or, or you just thought, look, no one's fighting this cause and people are ignoring it, and someone needs to bring attention to it? Yes, all of those things. Plus, it was really, really fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be honest, so so um, I started to get tip-offs quite early on about big name people. So you mentioned Tony Blair and Simon Cowell and Philip Green and Boris Johnson and various others. Um, who all had unpaid interns and and graduates would write to me and say, you know, I've been offered this job, you know, with Tony Blair, but it's unpaid. And because it's unpaid, I can only do it three days a week. But they've said I had to do it five days a week. And so I've had to say no. And I'd be like, oh, that's interesting. Do you have all the correspondence? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, it's all in this email. And I'd be like, can you send that over? So then they'd send it over and I would know immediately that that, that was a story and and by that point um I then had quite a big network of of journalists who I work with at the Guardian and the Mail and the Telegraph and it seems to just go across the political spectrum so um so I would then start kind of I did exclusive on Graduate Fog and then and then I would seed it out to one of those um, national newspapers usually um and then in exchange for giving them the story, they would have to link to Graduate Fog, they would have to quote me and, and say this was a Graduate Fog story. So in that time, I got a ton of SEO, which you guys will know about, um, and a whole load of press coverage. This was still making no money, I should add, at this point. Yeah. I did not have a plan for this. Um, and actually, to be honest, I was just running it as a sideline for a long time. And it was it, what has been a puzzle for me, really, 
was to how to turn something that's successful in terms of traffic into something that can actually sustain itself and frankly sustain me. Um, I, I sort of realized I was kind of running like a public service. Um, <laughs> but then I realized, you know, graduates love me, but they're not paying me any money. They haven't got any money. And then I was like, but the employers really don't like me because I was being such a pain, which is fair enough. It took them, you know, they've come around now, kind of. Um, yeah. But, you know, yeah. at that time, it just wasn't clear to me how this was going to be sustaining. But I could feel that I had that value and that engagement yeah. is so difficult to get um, with young people. And I found a way to crack it to kind of make careers and jobs an interesting topic. Yeah. What well, let's let's stay there for a bit. Oh, sorry, go on, Jack. I was going to say, what are you most proud of um, with what you what you've done with with Graduate Fog? Were there any particular things that you know you you've, you've been really proud of, or was it just you were proud of all of it? I mean, the Blair story was brilliant because that that went global, and in the end, he had to apologise and say that he was making that internship paid. So that yes. was pretty big, and that was on um, um, that was the answer in the odd one out round in um, Have I Got News for You? that story oh so that, that was a moment so yeah so that was pretty cool <laughs> Paul Merton got the answer right I think it was you know one of those odd one out things of who, who pays what and Blair was the odd one out because he pays nothing to his intern so that was quite fun <laughs> so there were things like that and you know Simon Cowell um and we ended up getting him investigated over that unpaid internship um Arcadia paid back all of their interns after after our name and shame they claim the two things are not related. Um, they're probably not going to sue me now, but um, they claim those things aren't related. But I mean, that was that's big stuff to get people to change their policy is mm. big. And also, you mentioned Capita, that that was more recent. So they they've been running an, an exit fees policy of charging graduates who left um, in less than two years up to yeah, twenty one thousand pounds, um, and they've scrapped that policy because I made so much noise about it. So those sorts of things make a real life difference. And those are really big examples of, of people being called out for doing it. Now, I think there's still work to do. There are still too many unpaid internships out there, particularly in the more informal industries. There are still firms running exit fees. I hope they won't be by the end of the year because I've got them in my sights. Um, <laughs> but, you know, someone needs to be fighting those fights. So it's fun. In, in answer to your question, it's fun. And, and I really hate bullies. And I just yeah. think this generation have been taken advantage of. So how did you move yeah. from being in a situation where you were uh, kind of um, probably most employers feared you or they weren't welcome if you were talking about them. They were thinking, uh-oh, we're in trouble now. This isn't going to be good news for us. To where you are now with the good and fair employers where you're, in fact, working with employers and they're on side. And so how did that change come about? And what is the good and fair employers and how does that work and how is it different from graduate fog? That's a good question. So I would say probably around 2015 or so, um, I started having conversations with employers who were coming to me and saying, we really like what you're doing and we, we think you're totally right about unpaid internships. Um, actually, EY were the first people to do that and they are a member of the club now. So they would come to me and then they would say, you know, can we can we write some editorial with you? Can you advise us on this, that, and the other? Or, you know, we're changing our policy on something. How does this look to you? So I was beginning to work with employers on kind of an ad hoc basis, and it was kind of working. Um, but I was interested in the idea that they were sort of saying, do you know what, you were right about this stuff. 
at exactly the same time as they were beginning to talk about social mobility and diversity, and they were joining those dots. And so we were talking about not only unpaid work, but things like the importance of having that social confidence and that polish, um, also the, having those connections to get you the first the first bits of work experience or unpaid, whatever it is to get you the paid paid experience. So all of those things began to kind of crystallize at the same time, really. So the conversation really kind of deepened and became much more sophisticated within that time. And, you know, I don't have to ever meet, I mean, I never meet big employers now who even try and explain, you know, unpaid internships. I mean, they're not not running unpaid internships anymore anyway, Mm. but I used to get into so many arguments about this stuff, like in my personal life and social life as well. I'd be at, you know, some, you know, someone's dinner party or some, you know, you know, and, and, you know, we'd get onto what do you do? And it became such a hassle having to explain this stuff. I don't have to explain that anymore. Yeah. You know, that that conversation has changed and not only within employers, but also I think the wider public and media understand it as well. So it's not about young people versus all employers. It's about it's about kind of young people and good employers versus bad employers. So my idea for the club, which I started in 2018, was really to bring together all of the employers who were doing really good stuff on this. Mm-hmm. And I was really hoping that I wasn't being conned by them in some way and that they were actually genuine about this stuff. I thought they were, but I thought I'm about to find out very quickly if they really mean it, um, was to ask them if they would come together and join a club where they could talk to like-minded employers and all share their challenges and, and solutions and ideas about how to make the world of work better and fairer for young people, how to recruit them, how to retain them, and in order to really to really test if they were as good as they thought they were, um, I would ask them to sign um, a, a list of, the, we still have it, the checklist that, that we ask everyone to sign. So top of that list was no unpaid internships. Um, but we've also got things in the list, you know, um, to, to check their serious about diversity. And also, um, you know, do you, um, do you reply to every application you receive? It's quite a good one. Uh, I hate that tumbleweed thing. I think it's awful to spend that much time on an application and never hear back. It's one of my bugbears. Um, and then um, do, you, do you supply, um, do you provide travel expenses if people ask, ask for it? So, so, you know, there are things like that in there. And we'll probably expand that list. I mean, it's quite rare now that I now meet an employer who's got a problem with that list, mm. which again shows how far we've come. So I think there's some really great work that has been going on at the same time. And so happily... You were rather tactful about that, Jack, but um, I have said I'm kind of poacher turned gamekeeper in a way. <laughs> so I'm kind of keeping them honest. Uh, but I think the people that we've got on board and the club is not for everybody, but the people that we've got on board are people that really want to be kept um, informed about how they can make themselves better. And I think what everyone's got in common, even the people who are absolutely brilliant on this in this space and leading the way, they've all got a sense of humility that there's always more to learn. So I really like that and that the ground is constantly shifting beneath their feet. You just can't afford to sit back and relax on this stuff because it's changing week by week, you know, particularly now, you know, in the aftermath of uh, COVID. Yeah. Well, um, well, firstly, congrats on that conversion of, you know, a perception from people all thinking about certainly, you know, unpaid internships. We come across it a lot when speaking to, say, smaller companies these days, uh, less so the larger firms. But what, what... what is it you think that's been the major shift, apart from all the hard work you've put in, of course, of calling people out, but what, what has been the major shift in people's perceptions from unpaid internships being something that happened and that people were sort of 
accepting of for today where actually there's a, a different approach to it and a, maybe the social mobility perspective on it is, is, is a bit clearer. Now, what, what, what do you think has been the main, the main difference? I think the conclusion everyone has come to is that this doesn't actually work for anybody. Um, it doesn't work for young people because too often it doesn't result in a job. It doesn't work for their parents who are funding them while they're working for free. It doesn't work for the parents who can't afford to fund their children for free. And actually, the big you know, drum roll moment is it actually doesn't work for employers either. Mm. That, you know, this, is, this is not a part of, of running a company that, that is going to go from strength to strength in the future. You are, you're effectively deselecting a huge, huge proportion of people before you've even met them. So it just seems nuts to, to miss out on that talent. Seems crazy. So I think everyone's just realised it doesn't work. It only works for very, very short-termist employers who want to get something for nothing. That's who it works for. That's yeah. it. That's really it. Yeah. Well, some because we have a lot of universities listening as well, and a lot of them would obviously love to have loads of paid opportunities available for their students. Um, but that isn't always the case, um, especially across um, specific um, like industries, you know, like the creative industries. You said you came from a journalist perspective, um, where the supply of roles is so small compared to the demand from students for these opportunities. So when supply and demand really don't work as well, that's when you see, in my eyes, it's when you see the most unpaid opportunities that are available which for, almost forces students to do them because it's their only option. Like, how do you see that playing out? Because, like I say, a lot of universities kind of have to support them because they need their students to get some work experience, which in their eyes is better than no work experience. Hmm. Yeah, I just don't really accept that argument, to be totally yeah. honest. No, I just cool. think, Good. you know, it shouldn't be unpaid, unpaid experience or no experience. I'm like, what's happened there? That That's... Just, that's just a false choice. I can see. We all need to raise our standards on, on, you know, what's actually going on here. Um, and, and, you know, I accept it is easier to find young people to exploit within industries where there is an oversupply of talent. I don't ex- accept that that means that you should exploit them. Yeah. I think we should also so, look to potentially better equip young people <laughs> to be able to, you know, not, they don't always have you on their shoulder looking out for them because you can't look at every employer. Maybe, you know, you highlight the biggest employers and the, you know, the big issues, but there's, there must be hundreds or thousands of employers who are doing that. And so I think one of the things that um, I know that we've focused on, Ollie and I have um, run a campaign for a number of years together, um, the National Work Experience Campaign, where we focused on one aspect, which has been knowing your rights. So if you do end up doing a an unpaid internship, whether you knew from the outset or you find out later on that it's illegal, how you can actually claim the money back. You can report them to HMRC because they should be paying PAYE on on your salary and they're not, and they can, you know, the fines and so on. So that could be kind of useful because then it's not quite like um, uh, give a man a, a fish and he'll eat for that day and teach him to fish. But it's kind of, it does equip someone to be more prepared for the future to be able to deal with those situations. Do you think that's something that universities should do more of? I do. And I have been saying that for 10 years. Um, I'm not quite sure what else to say on that point. I mean, I think universities are perfectly positioned to, to teach young people about their rights. Um, 
And I'm not sure why that hasn't happened yet. I think the NUS are also in a strong position. And again, they, I haven't really seen a lot of activity from them. They do something every two, three years. They launch some graphics or a poster. And I don't know what, I don't know what they actually achieve. I mean, I just, I, you know, I've been disappointed is all I can say, really. I have to be careful. I'm trying to make friends rather than enemies at the moment. Um, but I feel really strongly about this, and I, I think that's a really good question, and I don't have the answers to it. What I have seen is actually a lot more universities saying that they don't advertise unpaid um, opportunities. Um, so I don't know how, you know, you obviously know a bit about the law, but maybe not everybody does who's listening. Um, basically, if something looks like a job, then it has to be paid the minimum wage at least. So, um, so if you're doing set hours and set responsibilities, and you're doing work that would otherwise need to be done by a paid member of staff, your employer has to pay you. Now, the exemptions for that are charities. Um, and also if you're doing work experience as credit for your course. Mm -hmm. So most, well, a lot of undergraduate um, internships are allowed. I personally still think both of these exemptions are ethically a bit dodgy, mm -hmm. um, but those are allowed. But I am, I am encouraged to see more and more um, universities saying that they won't advertise unpaid stuff where it's a graduate opportunity mm. and where it doesn't count towards your course. So I think that's a good start. I think that's a really good start. Um, but I think these are, you know, these are, these are uncomfortable conversations. And, this, you know, you mentioned earlier, Ollie, about, you know, this idea of, you know, some, some unpaid experience, you know, is surely better than none. And it's like, well, you know, we just we need to move away from that. Mm. That's not an acceptable. Well, even being not, an option. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those alternatives are, those are not acceptable options for me. So I think we just, you know, we need to raise our game. And and young people are in a really really vulnerable spot here. So those of us that are not in a vulnerable spot need to speak up. Um, you know, one of the tragedies of the whole thing for me is actually if all young people decided overnight that they will not work for free, they will not do unpaid internships, then the problem disappears overnight. Hmm. The problem is, of course... But the fact is that they don't, have, they don't have that leverage, as we know, which is the dictionary definition of a vulnerable worker. I mean, they, you know, they're too scared to come forward and complain most of the time. They're too scared to email me um, anonymously sometimes. Yes. to talk about this stuff. Now, if that's not a vulnerable worker, then I don't know what is. It's also in the advantage of some students, right? So if you happen to be from a, uh, a background where you can easily do an unpaid internship, why would you want everyone to be able to uh, have access to that? Because there's an, there could be an advantage to you because there's fewer people who are able to do that. So I'm saying that there's a proportion of students, I imagine, who benefit from the unfairness. I'm not sure. And, and I'm always careful not to pit young people against each other, those from poorer backgrounds, those from not from poorer backgrounds. I know that's not what you were doing, but, but I have heard that sort of, that sort of argument before. Mm. And I, I think we need to be really, really clear who the bad guys are here. And it's, it's the employers yeah. who continue to take something for nothing effectively. I I... But I think, but I do, but I also think, and, and I've done unpaid internships myself, and at the time I could afford to do them, not for that long, but I could afford to do it. But would I mm. rather have been paid? Of course, yeah, of course I would. Yeah. You know, and and did I deserve to be paid? Of course I did. Yeah. And and how relevant is it that my parents could afford to fund that for a, a couple of months? I mean, it's absolutely none of your employer's business. And your work is worth what it's worth, irrespective of your own family's financial background. This is not how we decide 
who should get paid and who shouldn't get paid. You don't get people asking you questions when you accept any other kind of job about how much your parents own or what their house is worth or, you know, how long you can afford to work on this crummy wage for. That's mm. just not how the rest of the workforce works. So I don't know why we should make exemption for young people. And I don't think, I don't think that young people split into these, these groups of kind of rich versus poor grads. I mean, mm. those are the very extremes. But I would say most people are in the middle where they can afford to do something, but not for very long. They can afford to work unpaid for three months, but not six months, or one month, but not two months, or one week, but not two weeks. So, so everybody is somewhere on that spectrum. And that's why we just need a blanket rule, which we already have. We already have a law that says mm. this is illegal. We just need to enforce it. And that has been, that has been a failure of successive governments yeah. not to enforce that basic law. And that's probably subject for a whole other podcast. Because <laughs> I, I can go on and on. <laughs> but it's so frustrating, isn't it? But it's almost as if it, the whole thing could be solved really easily with a few stakeholders in the in the market right now. You know, let's imagine every university did a a, a forty five minute lecture on it. Every employer who offered an internship also did forty five minutes for every student who came through. If HMRC put out an advert in the newspaper and said, have you ever done an unpaid internship? Because you can claim it back and you can also get fined 50%. I'm sure like, there's lots of things you can do. I, I am nodding emphatically to all of these ideas. <laughs> I have suggested all of these ideas to people over the years and these things have not happened. Mm, and I don't know why it's just coming down to me as a pretty much unpaid campaigner on this issue. Why on earth is this falling to me? I mean, it shouldn't be. But I'm apparently the only person who's got 10 years of energy to spend <laughs> banging on about this. Mm. Um, but, for example, you know, you you guys and I could probably harness an awful lot between us and get something going this year. I'm not putting you on the spot on your own podcast, <laughs> but if we wanted to work together later this year, I'd be very up for that. And I think there's enough employers now who feel strongly enough about this. And it's not even a controversial issue anymore. It really isn't. Mm. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> It's wonderful seeing you so uh, so passionate about it because you know, you, you've always what's what's linked to all your work is it's you're always there for the student you're speaking for those you know that are in a vulnerable position and you're looking out for them and I think it's so important that you do that um, and I think you've done a brilliant job of it you know, we've kind of followed your success kind of as our businesses have uh, grown alongside it really and um, certainly from a rate my placement perspective we don't advertise any unpaid uh, roles. That's something we've we've never done, yeah, and I feel like all the unis that are now doing that, it's great to see that actually, um, yeah, they're all getting behind it or, or in that sense. Um, yeah, I, I think. To... <clears throat> I mean, it just it just really really bugs me, and so it, <laughs> that's that's what fuels it really for me is that I hear all these stories from young people who had to give up their dreams because they couldn't afford to work for two years unpaid to get into fashion. I'm like. You shouldn't have to work for two years anywhere to get into anything. I mean, yeah. it's madness. Fashion seems to be like almost the worst, right? Well, fashion is a cult. Yeah. So, I've had friends I who mean, worked in fashion literally. and they've been like, they work for a big brand and uh, yeah. it's like every stereotype that you think is not even real. Yeah. Like no. the wrong milk. They needed like, I don't know, Lima milk or something. And like the person went nuts when they bought the wrong milk and just like crazy stories you think aren't real. I know. Well, fashion, the fashion world does think it's an exception to pretty much every rule, as does the television, film and TV world, as well as does journalism. I don't think it's a coincidence that these are where internships started, unpaid internships started, and where they are still one of the most stubborn ones to get rid of. It's become kind of baked into the industry. It's become baked into the idea of 
you have to do what it takes. And if you don't, then you obviously don't love it enough. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a test. So it's sort of set up as being like, well, you know, I worked unpaid, so you should work unpaid and you have to do it for as long as it takes. And if you want it badly enough, you'll get there in the end. It's just not true. It's not true and it's not fair. Mm. So yeah. I'm just not having that. Yeah. And I guess for, for listeners, the whole, the whole reasoning behind this, you've mentioned a few very quick, quick fire reasons there. Um, is that it, it, it just separates those that can afford to work unpaid. So either more privileged uh, people um, and it completely rules out those that cannot afford to work unpaid i.e. the less privileged. So by doing that, I think you said earlier, you are completely disregarding a whole demographic, socially demographic bunch of people that cannot work for your business, um, which allows you to sort of focus and hone in on the privileged. Yeah, Um, and you can't can't complain that you don't know why your business is not diverse if you continue to hire like this. Or even if I have some employers say to me, oh, you know, know, we pay our interns. So they're obviously very pleased with themselves and they know how ferocious I am on this issue and they're like you know we definitely parents don't worry and I say that's great but are are you more likely to give your paid internship to someone who's done an unpaid internship first and I'm and they're like uh not sure might need to check that so it's like what is your selection criteria for your paid internships and are people that have done unpaid stuff more likely to get the paid one so Mm, it just goes on and on and on We can move on now to find out a bit more about your book, your most recent book. Okay. (laughs) Um, I mean, obviously this is a shocking time to graduate and I don't, I don't want to say it's not, and I'm not going to say, you know, it's all going to be fine guys. And there's plenty of jobs for everyone because it's a really tough time. And I don't think it's helpful to say stuff that's not true. Um, You know, I feel like, there have been problems with university for a long time, university tuition fees and therefore graduates. Graduate debt, what, if you're calling it a debt or not, I do see it as a debt. Um, so, so there have been issues for a long time there. Um, I just feel that there's an awful lot more that can and should be done to help this generation. And I think particularly the class of 2020 are going to get hit with it. I think... I think universities are going to need to do some soul searching about what they continue to provide for students. I think we're already seeing lots of issues coming out, which have actually got nothing to do with jobs, but to do with um, paying for accommodation that they're not using and paying for tuition fees when you're sitting in front of a computer. Is that really what you're paying nine grand a year for? I think these are all, I know they're uncomfortable questions. I know that it makes people that work at universities sort of wince. I know that nobody really wants to talk about this stuff. But we have to talk about this stuff. We have to talk about what people do with their investment of not only their money, but also their time and their work. We have to talk about who is winning from university and who is frankly losing. Um, so I think in a way, I think this, this horrible year is crystallizing that. And I think we're going to have to have those conversations. I don't necessarily want to have them right now the second, and it'd be interesting to talk to more universities um so I, actually we're just about to launch um university membership of the good and fair employers club this is a, this is a world exclusive in fact so our first oh. member is actually royal holloway oh um so yeah royal so, holloway. that's the university um, that, that paul yes. went to the other co-founder of all of our group aha uh-huh. if anyone's uh-huh. interested in that so again so we were 
you know, talking about the sorts of conversations we're having in the Good and Fair Employers Club. Um, I don't know if we're going to come back to Good and Fair Employers Club. Is that on the plan? Oh, yeah, if you do that. that. Um, So we, you know, I have been facilitating discussions all year about how the best employers of young people are um, are, are kind of tackling COVID and and all, all the fallout from that. So, so we've basically changed the club to make the whole thing online and doing events once a month, basically on that kind of themed discussions. Now, quality of the discussions that we're having seem to be so good that I feel like other people should be hearing them. And I think universities would do really, really well to hear those conversations as well. So, so this isn't going to be a mass market product and it's not right for every university, but I would love to get more universities who are prepared to have these conversations involved because I think they are a big piece of the puzzle here. Um, and I do think we need to work together. Now I got, you know, I got in trouble. I need to, I'm, I'm trying to learn to be more diplomatic and your questions are not helping me. <laughs> um, so um, I got in trouble um, just before Christmas because I, um, I did a thing for The Guardian and I said that I felt that university careers advice needed reform, um, which I didn't think was that controversial an idea um, and what doesn't need reform and everything needs improvement. And But anyway, it didn't go down very well and I, and I probably could have been more tactful with how I, how I expressed that. Um, on the other hand... I got I got a bit of kind of blowback from that. Fine, you know, maybe I wasn't, as I say, as diplomatic as I could have been. But I also got an awful lot of universities coming coming up and saying to me, "We're really glad that you said that." And actually, yeah, yeah you could have been more tactful, but you're right. We need to talk about what's happening with careers advice. And and I guess I know everyone's doing their best, and I know everyone's worried about their jobs as well, their own jobs. And I'm and I'm really not trying to upset people here, but. But I think the issue that I have, and I have been thinking about this over Christmas, actually, um, is that um, is that I see all the graduates who either haven't used their university careers advice um, centre or have used it and haven't found it helpful. So, and there are too many of those people who are coming out saying, I've literally no idea what to do. And they're firing off blanket applications for dozens and dozens and dozens of roles and getting more and more upset that nothing's coming back. And they don't and they haven't sat down and thought, what am I doing here? What am I doing? And just they have they've just started and they just haven't they just haven't put in any planning into mm. thinking what they're looking for. Mm. So so for me the question is if this is working, then then why are there so many of these young people that are doing that who are feeling completely hopeless, who aren't keeping a proper track of what's working and what's not working, who aren't doing their research properly, who aren't talking to people in the industry they think they want to get into. Um, maybe they don't want to get into it. If they talk to a few people, then, you know, they're not attending online events. They're just kind of flailing. And there should not be that many people who are flailing. And if, if careers advice was working, they wouldn't be flailing. So that's kind of what I keep coming back to. And I know that doesn't make me very popular to say that. Um, <laughs> you said that very diplomatically, I thought. Do you think? Oh, okay. absolutely. No, yes. Well, I'm trying. Well, I'm trying. Well, I'm trying. Well, I feel yeah, really strongly about it, so it's really hard yeah. to remember to be polite. <laughs> you're, you're, no, I think you're very considered in the way you say it, but also what you're saying is uh, not only something that's your opinion, which is fine because it's your own opinion, but this is happening for lots of students. And yes, we've got lot, about 800,000 students a year come out of university 
So, you know, out of that number, quite a large number, you're going to have quite a few that are feeling like this. But what I get the feeling from you is that you think it's more the majority that are coming out of university feeling uh, underprepared, less well-informed, rather than, you know, the the minority. We'd we'd rather have the majority of the 800,000 all coming out of university, well-equipped, well-prepared, educated, knowing exactly what's what's out there for them. And I guess you just feel that's not quite the case. Well, I don't think I don't think that was ever the case for any generation. I mean, mm. you know, I, I mean I graduated in two thousand and like, you know, I, I wouldn't say half of us knew what we were going to go and do. I wouldn't even say a third of us did. I mean I don't I don't think twenty two year olds have changed. You know, I mean they've invested a lot more. There's more pressure on them to make that investment pay them back in some sense. But fundamentally, 22-year-olds are exactly the same. And we have to allow them to try something that maybe doesn't work or maybe leads them down a road that they didn't think they were going to go down, but actually it's much better than the one they thought they were going to go down. We have to teach them that it's okay to try something and change your mind or it works for two years and then it takes you in a different direction. Or, you know, your your old boss who you worked for in your previous job, you know, calls you up and says, come and work for me. I've moved. I mean, this is how the world of work has changed and become more flexible and informal. And, you know, I think that relationship between, between all employees and employers, but particularly young ones has changed. And I, I'd be interesting to know, to hear your thoughts on the idea of job hopping. I remember when I graduated, like the worst thing in the world could be a job hopper, <laughs> which basically was someone that had worked in, you know, a succession of places for like too short a period of time. But now I just don't really hear that as being mm. as being this sort of shameful thing. In fact, with the way a lot of um, employers operate, unfortunately, it tends to be that, that in order to get a pay rise or a promotion of any kind, you have to move companies. Mm. Now, that, again, is a whole other podcast, um, but there's something going on there where the world of work has changed. So I think the advice we're giving young people needs to change as well. Plus... The world is changing so fast that actually it's very unlikely you're going to pick a career age 22 and do it until you're 65. I mean, what is that career? I don't even know what that even is anymore. I mean, I started in journalism at the exact moment that it was starting to go down. Ha, huh, I wish I'd known that at the time. Um, but, you know, the, I mean, so many industries are changing. Um, you know, hospitality has just been hit. How quickly is that going to come back? Is it going to look the same? So, So a lot of stuff in the book is all about how your career isn't really something that you can plan in advance anymore. And it's better to sort of navigate as you go and learn those skills to learn to be, I say, entrepreneurial. That doesn't mean you can't work for a big company, but to be, to think of yourself as in the driving seat. And it's not just about finding somewhere and just doing it for the next 40 years of your life. But I think that's exciting. That's a message mm. I can sell. It's realistic I mean, as well, isn't it? You know, you, it's very likely that that's going to be the case for many people. And I think larger firms would call, you know, they call the, the entrepreneurial world sort of entrepreneurs, where people are within bigger businesses, being as entrepreneurial as possible, but within a larger business. And it's that mindset, that mm. approach that you, you say there um, is going to allow people to flourish if they've got that um, outlook on life. Reminds me as well of yeah. the podcast we did with Chris Bishop, um, How to Prepare for Careers of the Future, which we did, a, uh, I think it was the last series, Series 5, I think it was. Yeah. Um, it's a really good question. And, and I always say go where the growth is. You know, don't pick a dying industry. 
and wonder why, you know, you're bashing your head against a brick wall. You know, just pick something else. And I know, and you know, just to say, my, my absolute passion is, I mean, I would say print journalism. What are you doing going into print journalism? Don't go into magazines. What, you know, like, what are you doing? Anyway, but that's another story. But you know, <laughs> there, there are some industries where it's like running into a burning building. And I know that may have been your dream since you were 10 years old or something, but if it's dying, it's dying. Yeah. And, you know, it's probably recreating itself in some way, in some digital format. Go there. Go where the growth is, you know? I think it's um, also... Because it's, you know, it's so demoralizing trying to make something work that's not working. I think it's easier in that sense because there's more information. So, you know, people like Charlie Ball, who've been providing data to the market for many years. And then there's other, you know, lots of people in this space provide research and data. And the government also provides better data. So the labor market um, information, I think that helps people understand where there are roles and how they're changing over time. The government does studies into what they think the economy like, might look like in 2030 or 2050. And so I think those things make it, um, it's possible to start seeing those things. And, and other things like you mentioned earlier um, about job hopping. And I think there's been through data, I think people's um, um, have changed their perception. So employers, I think, I can't say actually what happened um, uh, before 2007 and eight, because I wasn't involved in this space. But over that period from then until now, the last you know 13 years or so, um, employers seem to be really interested in what students want, what they want for their careers, and they listen, seem to listen to that. And so and there's been loads of research and multiple studies that show that uh, this generation um, uh, value certain things over money. So um, work-life balance, and they're going to be less loyal to their employer. They're going to be happy to go with what's right for them. And, and I guess if people listen to that, then it becomes more acceptable and therefore it's, it becomes less of an exception. So I think the biggest change over the last period, and I think it's been noticed, is the access to data for this space in the early career space. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that's good news, isn't it? Because isn't it better to make a more informed choice? I mean, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a little box in the book, actually, which says, you know, growing and, and dying, you know, list of industries. So... You know, there's the list. I mean, it doesn't take that much research to look this stuff up and go go where the growth is. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, we've been, this has been very passionate, and it's been lovely hearing all your thoughts about it. Um, what what what's your thoughts on 2021 then? How is it all going to pan out? What's your predictions for 2021? Well, um, in terms of the Good and Fair Employers Club, I think um, I've been so encouraged to see what happened in 2020. To be totally honest, in in kind of March, April time, I had this panic that everything I had built for this club, which is which is full of all of these employers who all say they want to do great stuff, and um, particularly on social mobility and diversity, we're all just going to abandon all of that stuff, or all of their commitments, and go back to hiring the way that they were before. Um, that has not happened. And actually, this year, there's been... Um, increased in interest in the club so i've just just had um a whole bunch of new members we're just about to announce so we've got green king um nbc universal and nationwide have just joined um so um it's been great to see that and that really gives me hope that gives me hope that enough good work has been done in the last five years that those sorts of firms cannot now unsee what they have seen 
And those commitments are real. And those are proper business commitments and their business commitments at a very high level as well. Um, thank God we've had enough time to get that going before this pandemic hit. So that that gives me hope. What I want to do is have all of those employers to basically drag all the others up with them mm-hmm. to keep setting those standards high. Um, this is how it should be done. This is what good and fair recruitment looks like. This is what good and fair retention looks like. This is what diversity should look like. Um, and to, to to keep pushing on with the improvement. So, so I'm pleased that those employers are there because I think they're going to be really, really important. And I'm glad the pandemic didn't hit in in 2010 or 2015 because I think we'd be we'd be in trouble um, in terms of the graduate space. Um, the thing I'm concerned about really is that I think we know what happens when young people are in a vulnerable position and when employers have too much power. Bad employers, I mean, but all employers have that power. Depends how you use it. Um, and I'm concerned that unpaid internships are coming back. I'm concerned that if we don't squish exit fees, this problem this year, it's going to mushroom because who doesn't want to find a way to lock in their graduates um, and or get them to pay you a load of money when they leave, if they leave in less than two years. That cannot be allowed to become to become the norm. You know, I mean, I remember stuff that, that, that we saw, you know, in the, in the really bad old days. You see people charging graduates for references one of them was that that was after doing an unpaid internship an unpaid internship you have to pay 300 pounds for a reference from your employer you've never even heard of that yes (laughs) i've seen it all i've seen it all and and (laughs) what i can tell you is unfortunately there is no end to the the ingenuity of bad employers um, who will who will just sit How down? How desperate would your business be for money if you need three quid for a reference? Well, isn't it easier just to? I mean, it's easier just to pay people. I mean, the minimum wage isn't that much. Like, come on, you know, you know, for the amount of time you spend dreaming up new ways to rip off young people. So that so that's my concern. So I think I think good employers have a really really important role to play here in saying no. This is not how business works. This is not what employing young people looks like. You don't just squeeze as much out of them as you can and see what you can get away with and what they'll complain about. Because guess what? They don't complain. We know that. Mm. So it's up to employers to say, no, this is not how we operate. And I think there has been a lot of work done in, in that space. And I think not, not, just, not just from an early careers perspective, but from a broader brand perspective. We've seen enough employers that have got this sort of stuff wrong um, mm. or even have been shown that their val- the values that they actually, you know, that the values that they say they live by actually aren't their values. So, for example, you know, lots of people saying Black Lives Matter, and then you see the, the board is completely white, things like that. So, so much easier to, to call out bad practice now. So I think, I think that's what gives me hope, really. So, mm. so we need the good ones to step good. up. So well, um, if you're listening, good ones, and uh, you're, you're not yet a member of Good and Fair Employers Club, please get in touch. Um, yeah, it'd be great to get more people on board. Is yeah, there... well, I think all of your um, uh, all your all your employers and a lot of employers we see certainly through um, all their objectives that they're working towards. You know, so many early careers recruiters have uh, diversity, inclusion, uh, bringing young people into the workforce through their early career schemes, being one of the best ways to bring um, a diverse uh, range of of young people from a social mobility perspective. Uh, and also like, ethnic diversity as well. So I think what we're seeing is it's a it's a brilliant route to access uh, that talent if you can get it right. Mm. Um, which I think com- combined with probably what you're seeing is uh, are coming together really nicely, where there's just a, a greater awareness, uh, a greater 
uh, keenness as well being funneled through early careers recruiters to to really be um like i say inclusive be diverse and actually bring bring young people into the business that um, yeah do i would say the workforce of the future yeah i would say uh, just one one quick way to say that really exemplified that is so the ebook is actually free for graduates to download. I really wanted it to be free for everybody. I didn't want them to get their wallets out because, you know, obviously that's easier for some people than others. So I wanted that to be free. And in order to do that, I needed to fund the book. So I went to my employers, members of the club, um, and, and said, look, can you fund this to get it going? It's not going to cost that much, but I do need someone to chip in. So, so we had EY, Santander, Vodafone and Accenture all stepped up to chip in and and actually, and I thought they were going to give me a hard time and say, what are we going to get for our money? And they didn't. They all just said, this sounds great. Do it. How much do you need? And I just thought, you know what? That is a real sign that people get this. And, um, and I, I, you know, to be, I mean, I'm not going to cry, but I was actually quite moved. I just uh, thought, you know what? That, mm-hmm. that is what young people need. Um, so I, so I, was, I continue to be very touched when people will, will offer help like that. And it shows that, that they really do mean it. Yeah, it's really nice to hear. Yeah, what a lovely way to sort of conclude. Is there anything that we haven't asked you yet, Tanya, that we should have asked you? Yeah, we covered Um, it. I suppose we just didn't didn't talk that much about the nuts and bolts of what the club actually offers, which, which might be quite helpful. How does the Good Employers Club work, in fact? Well, actually, um, it's quite, it looks quite different now than it did a year ago, as, as a lot of companies do. So until this time last year, um, we were running four events a year, all in person. Um, and it was, it was two, um, two kind of training breakfast events with external speakers and two fancy lunches where we get all of our members together to talk to one another about what they're doing. Um, but actually, in, obviously, in March and April, we realized that obviously 2020 was going to be completely different. Um, and actually what, what I did immediately was just to move, move everything online. What we ended up doing actually was an event every month um, online. So I just upped the frequency. Our first, our first session was in April, and that was basically getting, getting all of our um, employer members together. So this is heads of, heads of early careers, heads of graduate recruitment um, at you know, EY, Santander, Vodafone, Accenture, Ogilvy, all these companies um google channel four all to say how are you coping <laughs> and and the first one was a kind of group hug effectively because <laughs> everyone was just like oh my god this is a complete nightmare how you know what are we doing about internships we've got to change everything and obviously these guys in their roles which i do not envy them for they have to plan everything i mean we all know how much they plan everything planning is everything and so to have all their plans kind of thrown up in the air like that was extremely challenging and i have been just in awe of how they have tackled that, how calm they have kept. Well, I haven't seen their bad moments, but, um, you know, how calm they seem to have kept and and how they've come up with different scenarios of, you know, well, if lockdown continues and if it doesn't, and, you know, different plan A, plan B and plan C, looking at budgets all the time, looking at numbers, making decisions when you don't have all the information yet, or making three decisions, depending on what's the, what's the answer you get to question the, these various questions. It's really hard. So I think it's been really, really valuable for them to talk to each other. So we have these monthly coffee morning sessions, which are always on a theme. Um, so the next one is called The Big Sift. Um, and that's all about um, how to manage an increase in applications this year. Um, then the following one will be on um, schools in crisis. 
um, how, how employers can work with um, teachers, you know, stressed out teachers and totally frazzled pupils. So, so things like that have been really, really helpful for them. That's been great. And also to have external speakers. So those are our training breakfasts, which we still run. So we had, um, I thought he was going to cancel, actually. In April, we had uh, Paul Farmer, who's the chief executive of Mind. Right. I thought, you know what? He's, I mean, I booked him ages ago. I mean, I knew him through something. I mean, I wasn't paying him or anything. And uh, he said he'd do it. And I thought, I'm sure he's going to cancel. He's got, you know, and we've, got a, we've got a mental health crisis coming up. Anyway, he didn't cancel. He was absolutely brilliant, talking about mental health and young people and employers. And, and you know, we're keen to get him back this year. So he ran an event, you know, just, just for our, our club. Um, then we had Sarah Atkinson, um, who's the chief exec of the Social Mobility Foundation. She was fabulous again. I asked her to crunch her whole year into five easy-to-digest points. Um, and to her credit, she, she managed it. So we'll do events on, we're doing one on disability as well in the spring. And I also want to do one on how employers, what the role of employers is in tackling extremism. Ooh, possibly in the, probably in the summer. So talking about kind of what, what their role is there. So, so I've got some interesting stuff coming up. Some of it is very detail-focused and much more in terms of actual recruitment and selection. And some of it is big picture stuff. And I think that mix works really, really well for our members from what they say. Yeah, packed agenda. Sounds, sounds great. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it's fun. Really it's fun. I enjoy it. it. I love it. You know, I do yeah, love it. I mean, you wouldn't do otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> not making me millions, you know. I've, I mean, you know, I've got 18 members. So it's not making me millions, but it's good. And I think it's got enormous potential. And I'm thrilled at how it's come together this year. Because what's so what's so amazing is to see how honest everybody is, mm. and even when you've got you know in quotes competitor organisations, they are happy to share what's working and what's not working. So they'll say, you know, we just spent a huge amount of money doing X. It was a total disaster. Don't do it. We haven't thought this through. You know what we should have done, which was half the price and twice as effective, was this instead. So you see everyone taking notes, going brilliant. That's great. Um, and and also. People swap notes about um, their various um, service pro- providers who they use. Your name sometimes comes up, always saying good things. Excellent. But it's good really to nice to hear people talking about, you know, which partners they're working with, um, who's new in the space, who's getting results, who's not getting results. So they pretty much kind of, you know, as a way to, to sort of, you know, a lot of people have, have surprisingly small teams. I've been surprised by some huge organizations have small teams. And I think, there's a lot on their shoulders right now. You know, oh, can you just, you know, fix diversity, please, for this enormous <laughs> organization with a team of four people? Mm. Like, oh, cheers. Thanks for that. I mean, who wouldn't want to, you know, share with other people what's what's working so you can just kind of cut corners and not spend any time or any money on things that won't work and only spend it on what will work? So I think I think it's I just think it's an absolute no-brainer to get people together, only if they've got, got the same values, of course. But, um, but yeah, that seems to work really, really well. It's great to see. I lo- I, you know, I love seeing them talk to each other. I love seeing, you know, Royal Mail talking to Google. I just think it's endlessly fascinating to, to, <laughs> see, you, to see, you know, firms from completely different industries and um, that cross-pollination, how much there is to share. It's fascinating. I love it. <laughs> Here's to a good year. Let's exactly. hope. Yeah. Here's to a good year. Absolutely. <laughs> right, well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, lovely to chat to you. I'm sure the we've got lots of passion and energy coming out from from that as well. So, really, really appreciate you joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thank you. That's all right. So, it'll be a goodbye from Ollie and goodbye from Jack. And that and that's been the Early Careers Podcast. <laughs>
Boom. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye. For all things early career recruitment, the strategies to help you succeed. We'll help you work with Generation Z with all the information that you'll need. It's the Jack and Ollie Show.